This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, an ADS-B maker calls it quits. And One Aviation and separately, Evolution both trimmed the herd. FAA publishes some chart knowledge. We're scoring a victory in Heber City. All right, David, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final, 1324. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. And David, uh, tell, us, tell us about our guest this week. Wow, we have a cool guest this week. Um, we have Zoanne Harkelroad, and she is one of our Flight Training Experience Survey Award winners. In fact, the best instructor of the year. Yeah. As voted by her peers and her students. Yeah, and people yeah, that know customers, her. yeah. And she's out in uh, Colorado Springs, Ian. And I spoke to her about night flying tips. Do you want to know why? Uh, let me see. Well, the sun is setting a little earlier it around is. here. It is. Yeah. And what else is coming up? I don't know. The time change is coming up November okay. 5th. Okay. Pilots I, be aware. I can't keep track. So that's uh, that's a great time to talk about that because obviously night's going to happen a lot sooner. And uh, yeah, I, I met her at uh, migration, a couple Redbird migration, a couple yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, you got you got a chance to know her a little yeah, bit. Yeah, super nice and uh, enthusiastic, and I'm Very. sure awesome instructor. So she's a great guest for the podcast. Awesome, cool. All right, well, let's get into the news. This is an interesting story. Now, on on the surface, you think, okay, well, it's just an ADSB manufacturer that couldn't make it, but there's lots of different layers to this. Right. Um, we're talking about Navworks. This is big news too, and this is it actually is. a problem for some folks. It is. You know, we've talked before about the AD that came out. People right. might remember, and then right. there were some alternative methods of compliance. Uh-huh. But uh, about a week ago, it came out that's like, nope, they're done. Navworks closed their doors basically last week. Yeah. And then we found out just uh, over the weekend, basically that they were hit with a pretty significant fine yeah, from the huge, FAA. Huge, huge. Yeah. $3.7 bucks. That's a lot of money. Have they sold that many ADSB units no, to cover that? No. In fact, Mike Collins, who's uh, been tracking ADSB since the beginning and has been doing great reporting on it, basically said that 
he doesn't think that they've sold that much product total, much less have the profits or the assets right. or anything else to be able to pay a fine like that. Right. That's a significant problem for folks who are early adopters. And a lot of pilots are. They yes. want to get right ahead of that curve, buy those devices, and be compliant for the year 2020. So now they've sunk, you know, 4000 5000 bucks into these units. Yeah. And um, it's going to be pretty hard for them to comply at this point. Yeah, you have to imagine there's going to be a situation in the future where if they couldn't, uh, basically if owners couldn't comply with the AD and do it through an alternative position source, uh -huh, that uh -huh. it's like they're going to have to probably just get a new unit right. someday. Because if it breaks, it's like, what's going to happen? Right. Or even uh, Mike was saying that even the software, if there's a software update, and this is for the GPS position source units, mm -hmm. uh, the GPS chips, basically, yeah. that tell the ADSB system where you are. And so that's that's the issue. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more to it than what we can even go into on the podcast. Yeah, it is. It, you really get into the into the weeds here. I mean, Basically, what it comes down to is FAA, when they go through certification processes, like they have to verify the software in, uh -huh. the, in the GPS chip. And Navarx was using a third party, couldn't do that. And, uh, and that ultimately is what led to the downfall. Although, if you talk to the folks at Navworks, they say, oh, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, and I know that they, they did try to scramble and make things right for a while. And then um, there were some other options. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the website doesn't seem to function anymore yeah <laughs> and uh and i believe that that's it for them unfortunately yeah so i know our folks are looking into it more to see what sort of relief we can get for members who have installed the unit but um that's a kind of a wait and see because it's lots of stuff to work through with faa and what's left of the assets yeah it really makes folks gun shy about jumping onto new technology and that's yeah. something we don't want to see yeah you know? amen yeah so. absolutely um so similar news coming out of a couple of companies the end of last week uh, man, they, it's like they were falling like dominoes. It seemed like it was a plague for a while, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it did. So we heard from a couple more companies that, uh, well, maybe technically didn't go out of business in all cases. It's like they're kind of on, on the doorstep. Right, and uh, you're talking specifically about One Aviation to begin with, and mm -hmm. folks might remember them for the Eclipse Jet, mm -hmm. correct? Yep. And I believe they make those in New Mexico. Yeah, that's right, Albuquerque. Yeah, I um, think I went right by the when I was at the Balloon Festival, not this year, but the year before, I went right by their hangar. Yeah, yeah, it's a cool facility, and really a great jet. I mean, it's um, everybody who flies them and who owns them, they, they speak highly of it. They're really sleek looking, and I remember during the entire process of getting that jet to the market how much excitement there was yeah for that one of the first sort of big vljs that yeah, thought we're gonna darken like the skies yeah. and yeah yeah so um just not able to um to keep things rolling i guess with the new demand for new airplanes so they cut a lot of their force yeah basically their production force and the folks in-house in yeah and they were going to concentrate on another model we were talking about yeah so well one aviation if you remember made it was the kestrel okay uh which was the uh the turboprop combined with the jet uh -huh. uh, with the eclipse jet to make one so the word was that when they cut way back on the workforce that they were still focused on the eclipse 700 which also is known as project canada project canada but you got to wonder if that's ever going to happen yeah it's almost like pie in the sky it's uh, what do they call it they used to call it for software vaporware yeah <laughs> yeah right but uh but hopefully they can make a go of it i know that now what happens to i'm not trying to put you on the spot what, what about if you're an eclipse owner just like a nav works we talked about a minute mm -hmm. ago mm -hmm. now what would happen to eclipse folks well that's a great question i mean so technically the company's still operating okay and so theoretically you can still get some support uh, -huh. uh i have not heard how good that support is on you know but technically you can get it 
Uh, if they've quit completely, you know, the thing about it is there's, there is a viable company there, even if it's only supporting those airplanes. The technology is really neat. Yeah. And so there's, there's going to be a need for parts okay. and service and everything else. And somebody would buy that type certificate, I think, and, right. and support that stuff. It reminds me of the Mooney Corporation. Exactly. They've been through a lot of ups and downs in their, you know, 60 some odd year history. Yeah. And I used to have a Mooney. Yeah. Um, but there, and there were days when uh, the factory was staffed by a skeleton crew, but they were still there. Yeah, because there's money in parts and right. service. And, yeah. A lot. Yeah, yep. Yep. I mean, absolutely. That. Well, before we leave the subject, yeah. we got to touch base uh, on the Evolution aircraft, mm -hmm. which was uh, a genesis from the Lancer models. Yeah. And so the Evolution was the turbine powered, basically big engine on this uh, Lancer. Yeah. And it was a go high, go fast, go pretty far airplane. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, we heard that they had shut the doors. Yeah, which is really unfortunate because that's a uh, it's kind of a one of a kind design. Right. Um, you know what happened is a couple, uh, oh boy, a year ago or so, maybe now. Uh -huh. um, you know they they split off the piston assets uh -huh. for Lancer. They're down which in is, Texas, which is still a viable yes. product, and people should not yes. people with the three twenties and the three sixty should not be alarmed. Yeah, uh, this is well supported. Yeah, so all those all those Lancers are still there, still still going strong. They're still a factory. But yeah, that's right. The the turboprops that were left over in Oregon, it's um, looks like m maybe not happening anymore. Yeah, I um, just to let podcast listeners know, we do a lot of due diligence here, and I, I called the factory four times and four different phone numbers last week to try to get a response, and uh, no one ever picked up. Yeah, not a good sign. No, not at all. <laughs> not a good sign. <laughs> but we, but I feel bad again for the owners of these aircraft, of which there are about eighty some odd models out there. Mm. Uh, flying, yeah, um, and they have had a couple of bad uh, crashes. They really and, did, and I think that that led to some of this um, some of this downfall because of the liability issues. And uh, in a very kind of a, a small market segment, yeah, uh, a rather significant amount of crashes just has a pretty devastating effect. Yeah, that's very true. All right. So uh, from lack of support to more support, the Aeronautical Chart User's Guide. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I know that's totally changing 180 degrees. This is something I don't... Do you think most pilots are aware that this book exists? Uh, I didn't know it existed okay. until I brought it up to you Yeah. Today. <laughs> well, it's so I do wonder, because like got, I've gotten into it as an instructor. Uh, you were telling me. This is cool. Yeah. Um, but if you are a chart nerd, which I am, uh -huh. and I'm sure many pilots are, uh, the Aeronautical Chart User's Guide that the FAA published is a really cool book. It is. It's yeah. a it's hundred and some odd pages long. So yeah. if you really want to learn what the different chart symbols are, this is your go-to place. Yeah. Uh, and before we get too far down the path, yeah, I'll yeah. just let folks know they should Google FAA Aeronautical Chart User's Guide. But there are a bunch of free downloads there. If you're a VFR pilot, there's a VFR Chart User's Guide. For IFR pilots, is IFR Chart Users Guide, and it's pretty significant. And I started looking through it. It's a really, really a, a cool read. It is. So you know, you've seen the legend on the chart. Um, although now with iPads, it's like nobody sees the legend anymore. But right. theoretically, you've seen the legend on a chart, and and it gives you some of the symbols, maybe some of the critical ones. But if you look at charts and you're like, man, what does this mean, or what does that mean, or why do they do it like this? Chances are the answer is in the chart user's guide. It is. Guide. I'm yeah. sure it is. Yeah. So now you've discovered the chart user's guide. Right. To, uh, what have you geeked out on? What have you learned today? Well, well, I was really interested in this, Ian. Um, I was interested in how the FAA determined the maximum elevation figure. Now, these are the blue figures that are on VFR charts hmm. that, that basically advise you you know, how low can you go okay. uh, when you're not in an airport environment 
to, to still fly safely. Okay. So I was curious about that. Well, um, there are a couple of different ways that they figure that out. And I'll just enlighten our podcast listeners real quick. Yeah, let's hear it. So you know that these are called MEFs, and they're rounded up to the nearest 100 feet in value okay. to begin with. Okay. You know, the first two values are shown. Like if it's uh, 3,500 feet, you'll see a, a, a big three and a little five. Okay. Interestingly, man-made obstacles, when a man-made obstacle is more than 200 feet above the highest terrain in that quadrant, mm -hmm. that they survey the top of that obstacle, and they basically add 100 feet to that, hmm. and then it's rounded upwards okay. to the next 100 feet. Okay. So if something starts at a 2,649 feet, uh, the possible obstacle air is 100 feet. That gives you 2,749 rounded up to 2,800, not down, oh. but up. Yeah. However, if it is a natural obstacle okay natural vertical obstacle the you got their vertical error 100 feet plus 200 more feet obstacle allowance now what would that really? be for so wait a second so you're saying if it's a man-made obstacle you get there's less less of an allowance right. than for a natural one. yeah the only thing i could figure That's is that well the only thing i could figure is that there are trees and they oh, trees grow. Yeah. So trees grow. So oh, that's so smart. Yeah. So if you're at the top of a, I don't know, mountain or cliff or something like that, and then the, the top of a, you know, the land isn't going to go up or down. Yeah. But trees and vegetation could grow on it. Huh. And that could be pretty significant. That's a great point. Well, I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, I love that. I love that. So um, <laughs> there's other fun facts in the chart user's guide. So the reason we're talking about this, I guess we didn't say this, is that this is the first, it's, it was just republished. Right. First time since 2011. Yeah. And you would think like, what changes in charts? However, as I'm scrolling through it, uh, a new symbol that I don't remember from the last one, I'd have to verify the last one to see if it was actually there, but I don't think it was. On page 33 at the bottom right uh -huh. is a little space shuttle. And it's for a space launch activity area. Uh, like a spaceport. Yeah. That's new. That's really cool. Because before you had basically, well, what you had one. Yeah, NASA. And it, I suppose two if you include okay. Vandenberg. Okay, you're right. Vandenberg. At, at most. And, and Kennedy. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So, yeah, well, that's a good one, Ian. You yeah. stumped me on that one. Yeah, that one. And that's one. It's like you can sort of infer from the symbol what it is. Right. But really cool. Well, I'll tell you another one that we kind of fought long, AOPA fought long and hard to, to, to really eliminate this or at least get it charted. But we are happy to report that uh, Walt Disney World and Disneyland now have a, a blue circle yeah. over them yeah. for a temporary temporary but permanent flight restricted area. Yeah, boo. So that, yeah, boo hiss. <laughs> but nonetheless, finally, it's on a piece of paper. Yeah. You yeah, know, that's good. Only took, what, 15 years? Yeah. Okay. So really cool stuff in here. You know, I, I've got a buddy who actually works in the charting office, and I've, I've learned a lot about how charts are made. And uh -huh. it's fun kind of looking through the chart user's guide because it reminds you that, and I suppose this makes sense when you stop and think about it, but most, you know, we don't stop and think about our charts very often, right? right? You know, these are handmade. They are, and it requires a lot of work. It does. And so somebody is sitting there and uh, and working by hand to do these things. And so, for example, there is a cartographer's, sort of license mm -hmm. to make the chart more readable or more usable, even in, and sure, there's a standard and they have to conform to a standard. But for example, a tower may not actually be where the tower symbol is exactly. I am so glad you brought that up, Ian. This blew my mind. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. they, you know, it's like they can't put a tower on top of a word or vice versa because then you wouldn't see it. And so right. it's like, you know, it's close, but it might not be Latin long to the to the minute. The other thing that really that I didn't realize, and I'm glad that I looked at this uh, chart user's guide, is that is that 
airports aren't sometimes where they're supposed to be either mm. based on the same situation. Like if there's yeah. not enough room to indicate it. Yes. The, now this, this just, I couldn't believe it. Airports are, are plotted in their true geographic position unless the symbol conflicts with a nav aid. Oh. Okay, at the same so location. So they want the nav aid to, be, to take precedence. Okay, yeah, but let's, let's go hypothetical for a minute here. Okay. So we're, we know that VORs are being you know gradually closed out mm-hmm. you know, from the system because mm-hmm. more and more people have you know, WAS, uh, GPS, and we navigate by GPS. Mm-hmm. So... I don't understand why a nav aid would take precedent if maybe the VOR is going to go away, but oh, the yeah. airport's not moving. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. We'll have to call him and ask him. <laughs> well, it's maybe like, you could call your friend and yeah, ask him. I should. Yeah, because you probably know. But yeah, things like cities, you know, the, outline, the yellow outlines for yeah. cities, you can call. And say like, hey, I don't think the city really matches what it looks like on the ground, and they'll yeah. they'll look at it because no as cities grow and change, they the outline can change, and, and they'll do that for you. They'll look at it for you. That's interesting. Now, yeah. Zoanne Harker Road talks a little bit about night lights and cities as well. That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, cool stuff. <laughs> very, I like it. <laughs> Chart user's guide. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Enough uh, enough nerding on that. Um, all right. Some more serious stuff. FBO pricing. We've come back to this a few times. Yeah. AOPA, as you probably know by now, is fighting FBO, these egregious FBO pricing and practices, um, specifically on a couple of different fronts, one of which is through specific actions at specific airports where there is egregious pricing. And there are a handful of those airports. Yep, that's right. right. Um, it's not, not necessarily widespread, but a couple are really bad offenders. And we've noticed a lot of comments on those handfuls. Yes, one of them right. being Heber City, which is in Utah. And that's near Park City, where a lot of people go skiing. Yeah. Yeah, a big vacation area, I right. guess. Yeah, so apparently the FBO operator there, which is called OK3 Air, okay um, three. has in the past made comments saying that uh, they jack up fuel prices in order to keep airplanes away. Just to keep it small, and we don't want more people coming in. Yeah, so oh, let the jets how in. Nice. And, yeah, isn't that great? Right. Keep in mind, by the way, that this is an airport that you've paid for because it's a public asset. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, a- AOPA complained uh, about Heber City, among others. Yeah. And uh, we got some we got some relief. Yeah. It looks like for pilots that want to fly into Heber City, they will soon have the option of having self-serve fuel available to them. So that will give them some financial relief. And hopefully if they want to go skiing or they want to go check it out in the in the summertime, they'll have that option where they can they can go to more than just one place. Yeah. Instead of OK3 Air, they'll have a second option. Yeah. So this is just kind of, I think it's a really nice example of what's possible with this movement to be able to get relief for pilots at specific going. airports. We got it going. We got, yeah. And we asked our podcast listeners and our members to write us and tell us where they were having problems. Yep. And like you said earlier, you know, they did. And so we got some things changed. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. That is helpful. Yeah. All right. Top story. Uh, we want to we want to do some celebration. Okay. And, uh, and lead into our guest. AOPA recently gave away the 2017 Flight Training Experience Awards. Uh, we've been doing this now for more, I think more than five years uh-huh. and uh, celebrating basically the best flight training providers in the country. Right. And these are also, these awards are pretty significant because these are um, often voted on by the students themselves mm-hmm. that are participating with a, you know, with a flight school, you know, going to a flight school. And so uh, this is really significant because you got to be the best of the best to take that award away. Yeah. And yeah. uh, you have to have a yeah run a classy ship basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we ask students to rate their flight instructor and their flight school. 
and uh, give us all the real honest details and, and through what kind of experience they've had. And it's based on uh, research into what we know is the ideal flight training experience. That's an important part of this to consider, which is what we want to do at AOPA. We want to make other flight schools aspire mm -hmm. to take over these awards and be the winners themselves. Now, there already are winners if they're trying and they're doing the best that they can and moving ahead. Yeah. But the whole idea is to spur excellence. Yes. And make more flight schools and more instructors aspire to be the top of yeah, the top. That's exactly right. So um, I'm going to run through the best schools real quick. Now, one thing we did differently this year is we used to have sort of an outstanding category and a best winner, right? And then an honor roll. And okay. so this year we changed a little bit because we realized that the the best winners were so popular mm -hmm. that uh, people reached out to them because they they wanted to go with them so much that it was hard when they were all the way across the country. Okay. And so we said it, we split it into regions so that if you wanted to have a great flight training experience closer to home, you could uh -huh. do that. Uh -huh. So quickly running through, the best flight school in uh, the Northeast was uh, Take Flight Aviation at Orange County Airport in New York. Nice. Uh, FL Aviation Center is in Tallahassee. They were the best in the Southeast. Okay. Um, best flight school in the Midwest went to Blue Skies Flying Service and Pilot Shop, uh, which is in Illinois. And the best in the Southwest was the Texas Flight Academy in uh, Montana, right? No. <laughs> in Texas. Texas is so big, it might as well be in yeah, Montana. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we did the same thing for the best instructors across the country. Some of the best instructors across the country, regionally, are instructor Jim Fellers of Blue Skies Flying Services and Pilot Shop in Lake of the Hills Airport in Illinois. And uh, Robert Coletti of Republic Airport in Farmingdale on Long Island, New York, which I have been to. Mm -hmm. Same here. Yeah. That's a really great airport. And uh, Chris Dupin of Destin Flight Works. I'm going to guess Destin, Florida. Yep. And uh, we're going to head to the Southwest for best flight instructor at Sierra Charlie Aviation in Scottsdale, Arizona. Instructor Scott Campbell's students described him as knowledgeable, courteous, friendly, and a very well-rounded instructor. We also chose a best flight school out of this and, and a best instructor. But the best flight school is SkyTrek Alaska Flight Training. Um, we'll have Jamie on next podcast. Jamie Patterson Sims. Yeah. And because uh, I actually talked to her. We'll have a, yeah, we'll have a future podcast with her. Yeah. And the best instructor is a great intro. Zone Harkle Road <laughs> of Rocky Mountain Flight Training Center in Colorado Springs, which is not far from Denver. Yeah. Um, really cool. Zoanne, it's a, it's actually really, it's an Air Force, and there aren't that many of these left. It's an Air Force Aero Club. Yeah, I was trying to get a handle on, on a that. Base. Ex That's explain, on Patterson explain Air Force it. Base. And she said it was super crowded, too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, there are, you know, if you talk, a lot of folks who... Uh, were in the military but didn't fly in the military. They learned through an aero club. Okay. But there just aren't that many of them around anymore. Yeah. And so this one, I think it's at Patterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, um, is is one of the few. And so when you read through her nominations, it's phenomenal uh, what she does for her students. Well, I think that is really uh, outstanding. Um, and really kudos to everyone in every school that we mentioned. Um, but in particular, Zoanne, I called her out of the blue and asked her a little bit about night flying tips because the, the time is getting ready to change. And she has some super cool stuff that we could all take a page out of her book and learn about. Good. I need this. Without further ado, we'll introduce Zoanne Harker Road via Skype.
All right, so via Skype, we're going to welcome to um, ALPA's Hangar Talk, Zoanne Harkle Road at the uh, Rocky Mountain Flight Training Center. And you have just uh, received one of our Flight Excellence Awards. Congratulations, Zoanne. Yes, thank you so much, David. Yes, that's quite exciting. It sure was. It sure was. And we're so glad that you're with us today on Hangar Talk via Skype. And what we're going to do um, for our podcast listeners, we're just going to talk a little bit about night flying because the time change is coming up here shortly on November 5th. And we're going to uh, chat a little bit about what you might have for some of us uh, via some tips. Are you ready to go? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, night's one of the most delightful times to fly. Uh, everything just seems to calm down both you know, the air, the air mass, the controllers, the traffic. That's just a gorgeous time to be out on most nights. It sure is. A lot of us really like to fly uh, close to sunset because it's beautiful for pictures, but also for the reasons you mentioned, because the air does calm down a little bit, uh, especially here on the East Coast. We have a lot of, you know, activity late in the day, sometimes, especially during the summertime. First of all, let's go ahead and um, tell us a little bit about why you do like to fly at night. Maybe we can start with that. Sure. I've pretty much flown in the west and the southwest here. And, of course, right now being on the front range of the Rocky Mountains, um, you know, we get those prevailing westerlies that come over and crash down on us in mountain wave and lenticulars, and those types of things. But, um, you know, like, as you mentioned, and, and as I love it, you know, as the sun comes down, those winds seem to cease. And, um, it's the standard pattern. I mean, you can have air masses that do kind of crazy things. But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a delightful time to fly. You can, you can see traffic a lot further when people start to bring their lights on. Uh, and the aircraft lights, I'm speaking, they, they, certainly the ground lights, lighting is beautiful. It's just, you know, it seems like everything just calms down. Uh, controllers seem like there's less traffic, at least, you know, along here in the front range of Colorado. And, you know, the weather, the mountains, the winds, we can have them howling all day at 30, 40 knots. And, and then it just, you know, just after dinner, just everything calms down. It's beautiful. Now, are you located near Denver or Fort Collins? Or where are you? And you know, you're in Colorado, correct? Yeah, I'm in Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs. Down, uh, south of Denver, yes. Gotcha. And how far away from Denver are you in Colorado Springs? The closest airport there for us would be about 30, 35 minutes away, the uh, Centennial Airfield, the home of Jefferson. Well, you must have some beautiful scenery out there on the front range, although you do, like you said, you do have to deal with some weather at times, uh, especially the wind. And uh, of course, in the, in the wintertime is a whole new ball game. But thinking a little bit about your students and a little bit more about some night flying, what are some common gotchas that people should look out for, first of all? Well, it, most of the um, water masses here on, in the state of Colorado are, are reservoirs. And you know, we put reservoirs every place that we can can uh, collect our own water for and you know a lot of times at night and especially on moonless nights uh, maybe a few cl high clouds are out there and you, you know you'll see a small town on the other side of the lights um, and of course where the where the reservoirs are there are no lights and a lot of the mountains don't have much electricity or lights uh, around them but you could perhaps see a town um, across the way as you're and if you're approaching uh, a lighted area and you see these dark circles, you think that they're lovely reservoirs, and those lights start to disappear. You're probably not going over a reservoir. You're probably headed straight into a mountain if you can't continually see those lights on the other side. Now, of course, you're going to make it over the mountain if you can continue to see those lights on the far side of, of your flight path. But that's probably the biggest thing that we have to get pilots used to is you know, being able to see ahead in a different way at night. 
And one of those ways that we do that, of course, up and down the front range, we do that because we can, um, against the clouds, we can see the glow of the next city. And uh, you can really begin to see how the earth is curved because you'll first see the glow of, of the city. The, the lights from that city will be glowing on the clouds above. A key takeaway right at the beginning of this uh, little conversation was that if you see the lights and then they go out, then that means, and they go out. That means that there's something big in between you and the lights, right? Yes, exactly. So exactly. The, and in your case out west. You're no longer going over a reservoir. Right. So it's a mountain. It's something dark that is yes. uh, ominous. Now, now we also yeah. now we have uh, some tools with us these days that help out in that situation where we didn't have that probably when you um, first started flying. I know I started in, in right. the year 2000 with my lessons, and, um, right. and even then we didn't have it. So we do have more situational awareness, but twinkly lights, you all, so you always want to see some twinkly lights. That's the bottom line, right, if you start seeing Correct. it. Correct. That's Awesome takeaway. Now, tell me a little bit about, you said something about the lights kind of shining off in the atmosphere a little bit, or the lightness in the atmosphere. Explain that a little bit more to me. Right, and then perhaps you have that out east, too, because you have so much moisture. We we don't have a lot of moisture, but when we have those high clouds over there, um, you know, the bright city lights, like from Denver and Boulder, and, and of course, Colorado Springs and, and Pueblo along the Front Range, and, and many of our um, western slope cities, too, is that... Um, the, the lights will reflect long before you get to the city. You can often see at night that haze and the lights from the big cities reflecting in the, in the far distance. And then as you fly around the curve of the earth or up and over the, the mountains, then you can actually see the, the lights shining from the ground. But, uh, but, you know, you're right, David. You mentioned about um, you know, our electronic flight bags and, and all of the, uh, the terrain avoidance um, options right. that we have. Uh, there. You know, that, that's marvelous. That's, that's been really, really helpful. But I also have to caution my pilots. They want to have their, their lights on their tablets and the instrument lighting in the aircraft. They want to have it up really bright so that they can see it. But if I could just get them to turn those lights inside down and you put your um, tablet on the lowest setting or the night vision setting so you can take out some of that white light. Yeah. You can see so much more so farther. So much I agree. Farther. Well, because it's light, it's like light pollution in the cockpit. That's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. <laughs> exactly. And that's one of the first things you learn about when you're preparing for a night flight, which we'll get into in a second. But that's a good takeaway. Turn the volume down on your electronic flight bag if you use one. Right. That's a great tip. So now uh, I hate to hopscotch around, but let's bookmark that for just a second, Zoanne, and let's think about pre preparing for a night flight. And that, you know, because we just talked about it just a little bit. What do we need to do as pilots to prepare for a night flight and make sure that we're in the right zone mentally, but also, you know, maybe we know a little bit more about our airplane, where we can get the stuff, things like that. And you can touch on, on the lighting aspects as well. Sure. Well, and even before that, um, as I try to encourage all my pilots to come well-rested, well-hydrated, well-nourished. Um, and, you know, hydration is probably one of the biggest things at night because we're staring out, we're looking and, um, you know, not only does it become uncomfortable if we're thirsty, but our eyes don't see as well if they're dry and, you know, wearing contacts, glasses, as I have for many years. You really, I really have to pay attention uh, to that. And, and I encourage, you know, um, even my, my young 20-something pilots uh, with their young eyes, you know, still stay well hydrated. You won't know until it's too late and you won't be able to have that good visual acuity. Uh, fun little story. We were um, flying, uh, three of us instructors and flying between uh, Colorado and, and then Arizona one evening, and we're flying over New Mexico. And I looked down and I said, is that snow on the ground? And my eyes had gotten so dry that I was just looking 
at um, the untended fields that were just gone fallow, and it looked to me like there was snow, and the, the other clouds were like, no, no, no. Oh, my. It's, it's just grass. Wow. And you brought up a good point because you fly out out west and the, the you know density altitude is a little bit higher. Your elevation, your base elevation is higher too. Yes. So being hydrated is even more important to folks in the front range and uh, doing some mountain flying. Right, right. And thanks, David. You led me to a great point there too. You know, our base, our elevation here at the at the Colorado Springs Airport is almost six thousand two hundred feet. Um, which, you know, my friends, when I, when I started flying in, air, in the deserts of Arizona there, field elevation was 1,000 feet, and we may, you know, fly our, our whole um, private pilot training class and, and never get up above 6,000 feet. So, right. Good point. Yeah. And you're, you're starting at that. We're starting at that. So, uh, you know, we probably naturally here have a few more red blood cells to take in um, as much oxygen as we can get out of, out of the atmosphere here, too. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the, I think the recommendation is to, start wearing um, oxygen at nighttime when you're above 5,000 feet. And I think, you know, that's, that's really good information because that is. we have so much less oxygen available per volume of air. It's still the same 21%, but those molecules are spread out a little farther, and it's not like we can just take a big breath and scoop up more oxygen. Right. We've got to get it down to, to the cellular level. And, um, key takeaway. Absolutely. If you have a chance to, you know, to come out to Colorado Springs, the Peterson Air Force Base here does have one of the altitude chambers that you can um, sign up to go through. And it, it's amazing you know, what happens um, just even to your color vision at night without the oxygen in, in the chamber flights. You, you know, everything is just a series of black and whites, but you put on the oxygen um, even, you know, at, at uh, 6,000 feet from the get-go from, from taking off here and the colors and everything just come alive um, on your charts. Your handwriting gets, um, uh, for at least for me, got much more legible. <laughs> Wow, that is bizarre. Definitely that is so, thinking more clear. <laughs> no kidding. That is something that I really wouldn't have thought about. So you got a chance to experience the oxygen chamber and the pressure chamber. Yes. And so what was it like? Take us through that real quick on a, on a little sidebar. Sure, sure. Um, the profile for us was that we um, um, we brought 100% oxygen for um, a period, and I don't recall the, the amount of time it was, and as they were you know, pressurizing or depressurizing the chamber, taking us up to only 25,000 feet. Then they had us take off our masks and um, answer an, a number of questions and do some calculations. And then, you know, there were simple things like, you know, what's your name and address and um, what you had for dinner and where you went to school and just things like that and mm-hmm. some calculations that you might use. Um, and, you know, everyone's symptoms of hypoxia are, are very personal and, uh, and very unique to them. So, you know, we had some people that, you know, stayed in four or five minutes and didn't need oxygen. And then we had some folks that, you know, took it off and, just started acting silly and flopping around. And personally, I just got to the point where I didn't care, but I knew I didn't care. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so they, yeah, um, I was sitting in chair number seven and they hollered at me, number seven, are you feeling symptoms of hypoxia? And I would shake my head. I didn't speak and answer, but I shook my head. Okay, number seven, uh, start the in, in emergency flow of oxygen, put all three switches forward. And so I'm going like, yeah, okay. And I, I knew that they were telling me to do that. I knew I was supposed to be, but yet I still put the switches up one switch at a time. Okay, number seven, put those um, switches all up together and attach your mask. Well, as soon as I got all three switches uh, up, even though the mask was hanging down, well, maybe uh, two or three inches in in front of me, I could begin to get that 100% oxygen coming in the mask, put it up, and I was like, yeah, I was really stupid there. Well, (laughs) that is amazing. Yeah, but it was good to know that, right? And so now I share with with pilots, whether it's a night flight or a higher altitude flight, a mountain flight. We do a lot of mountain checkouts up here. 
Um, I let them know my personal symptoms of hypoxia is I begin to not care about things. So if right. you catch me not caring, you know that I'm in trouble at that point. <laughs> well, that's a key takeaway. That for a key takeaway from that flight was your own personal level that you just mentioned, right? And also, right. just in general, the like you said the 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 uh, colors were black and white, and they came alive when you had uh, more oxygen. Right, but- and then that was the the next part that they did to for us is that they dimmed the cabin the uh, chamber lights, and they put these literally a color wheel in front of us. Um, you know, that you might see at, at, at any store when you're trying to you know, match different colors of your clothes. They put those color wheels in front of you. Then we took off our masks. And again, you know, with the low lighting, the, um, the colors were all just, for me, it was just various colors of gray. And then um, we put our masks back on. They started the flow of oxygen for us. And, they, you know, the color wheel just came alive. But yet they had not changed the color of the lighting in the altitude chamber. So it's just our bodies reacting in a different way. And so it went from a black, white, and gray to basically uh, lit up like a Christmas tree the normal way. Yes, exactly. And I think that may be why some of my pilots sometimes will, will be turning up the contrast and brightness on their, on their screens hmm. um, when we're flying along, that they may you know, be getting some, some hypoxic symptoms, even though we typically will do our training flights Oh, at 9,500 to maybe one zero thousand five hundred um, for our night flight training flights out here. Well, that's something you just touched on that is really kind of cool. If you find yourself uh, turning up the intensity level of your the brightness. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah of your EFB or even maybe even the panel panel lights, that might be fir- sure. a first clue for folks to say, wait a minute. It's nighttime. I need some oxygen. I need to, you know, lower my, if, if you have the opportunity, lower your altitude. Um, or if you have oxygen, yes. get oxygen going. Yes. Wow. Cut that flight short and go back and get, you know, get a tank of oxygen. It's, it's pretty cheap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Even if it's, you know, what, 40, 60, 80 bucks to fill a tank, that's a whole bunch cheaper than bending up something. Yeah, that's a, that's interesting. Well, um, think about also some of your um, some of your students. You've got a whole gamut of uh, students from folks who are just learning how to fly to other folks who probably have it. You know, are looking for an advanced rating. What about uh, how, and you know someone that wants to go uh, and, and start their flight instruction? What would you tell them about their first night flight before they attempted it? What would you coach them into doing? What are some of the first steps? Sure. Um, one of the things that I, I think is kind of fun and entertaining is to, you know, turn on the lights in your house and then, uh, you know, in, in nighttime, you know, after dinner or, you know, getting ready for the, to turn in for the evening and then turn them off and see how long it takes you before you can recognize things around the rooms around your home. Yeah, I'm, I'm no longer 20 something or 30 something. I'm not even 40 something. I'm much past that. <laughs> so I, something that, that I want to, you know, to just to try to keep uh, assessing the health of, of my eyes and my vision. And uh-huh. I wear contacts, so of course I go to the uh, ophthalmologist every year. But, you know, how long does that night adaptation really take? And you, know, you can find around your house, it doesn't take that long, you know, 10, 15 seconds, and you start, but you're familiar with that area. Um, now, you know, if you go, you know, to your neighbor's house, you wouldn't, you know, would you be able to do the same thing? But, but going, you know, out, uh, in our regular training airport areas, um, which you're probably pretty familiar with when you first, you know, um, our night flights usually happen in stage two. So the pilots has anywhere from 10 to 20 hours of experience, but it's all pretty much in the local area. So now you go out at night and, you know, you do those things that the FAA tells us to avoid bright white lights for 30 minutes before the flight. And you, you know, you continually you know, get that night adaptation as you're taxiing out 
and you know, slowly looking and deliberately seeing the things that are around familiar. But for the pilot, that first time taking off, they tend to go quiet and have just that wonderful ah moment. And then they realize they have to fly the airplane. <laughs> yeah. I almost always will take that first takeoff, bring it around for a stop and go landing, and then let them have the second one. So the first time they can get that those oohs and ahs out and kind of get their bearings and look for familiar things, I try to point those familiar things out to them as they go and what they look like at night. We have Shriver Air Force Station about eight miles to the east of us, and that's a prominent point for entry and exit um, to the east from Colorado Springs. Well, it looks completely different at night. It is nicely lit up, and it's a perfectly nice square, but even sometimes just to find that, it you know looks so much farther away when they are first taking off um, of the airfield here. So let them get those oohs and ahs in while the instructor you know, maintains the aircraft control and brings it around. It also helps me to stay current with, with my night takeoffs and landings. Then they can take over the airplane after that uh, stopping on the runway and, and, and taking off again. And, and they've had a chance to do some oohs and ahs, and now we can get down to business. So I would, I would encourage them to look for the things that uh, you know are supposed to be there, and then what do they really look like. And, um, you know, just even in the traffic pattern, pointing out where the um, runway we're using, for the most part, the, the Cessnas, where the strut will run about halfway down the runway lights, mm-hmm. or the runway will you know, bisect the strut. You know, right. Look for that also, because they tend to kind of creep up close to the things that they're unfamiliar with. They want to get closer and make sure that that's it at, at nighttime, but still use those same references that they use during the day at the night. Um, you know, We have uh, some antennas and lights on the top of Pikes Peak. The lights on top of Pikes Peak can be really hard to see if when you're just staring at it from you know, 15, 20 miles, 20, 30 miles away. Um, the lights on top of Cheyenne Mountain um, are an array of red and white lights. So those, as, as a grouping of them, as the array, it's much easier to see. So I'll have the pilots, you know, focus on that and then look for Pike's Peak. But it's not until they see, till they begin to uh, understand how to look off center, not just stare right where they know it should be, look a little bit to the side where they actually can, can pop up and see that light. Um, on top of Pikes Peak. So that's a couple of key takeaways that you just uh, went over. One that just struck my mind is use that strut on a typical training Cessna and the runway edge lights there, uh, and it should still be in the same basic relationship as if it was in the daytime. Sure, exactly. Uh, that way you know you're in, you know, basically you're the proper distance away from the runway when you're starting your pattern work. Then also you touched on this several times, uh, talking about Pikes Peak and the local um, Air Force Base, but basically know your environment and the visual references, and that it, it looks quite different at night versus the daytime. Yes, and then when we do night cross countries to places we've never been, you know, I think the best key there is to get yourself um, a low altitude and route chart. Okay. And fly those routes. Yes, um, those actually tell you the safe altitudes. For the instrument pilots, they're minimum in route altitude. So if you're on the, on those airways or Q routes, you know, with the with our RNAV routes, they will keep you from hitting things, and and that's what it's all about. So that's an extra margin of safety. Basically, you're saying look at those airways and look at what the minimum recommended altitude is and adhere to that. Yes. That's a cool takeaway. I would have never thought of that. Well, and you know, a lot of us use the maximum elevation figures um, on our sectional charts, and, and the low-altitude route in route charts have those maximum elevation figures also. But in our area, right over the airport, courtesy of Pikes Peak, it's over 16,000. Oh, man. So that would be a little bit impractical. Yeah, it would be us. hard to do in a typical 172. Yeah. 
Um, that's interesting. Probably take all of our timing team. Right. Well, now, um, so those are some great tips. Now, uh, we didn't get into illusions and things like that, but uh, we did a little bit about the twinkly lights um, near a reservoir, and then if something came in between, we, we would assume that that was a mountain or something, a, a big block of, of uh, land that we don't want to hit. But think about the illusions, and give me just one common uh, illusion that um, that pilots will go up against at night and maybe one way to combat that. Sure. Um, I was on the, an instrument flight with a pilot and we were coming, I was, we were actually in instrument conditions um, in one of the training aircraft. And uh, she said to me, she goes, oh, I have the runway in sight, turn 30 degrees to the right. And I'm like, but my needles are centered. And I looked up and she was actually looking at an interstate and was about to have us line up with the interstate. <laughs> okay. So, All right. So, yes. Yeah, this was a, a double eye applicant. So it's it's great to make these mistakes and learn from them, but you know, with the right people in and, and I and I hadn't actually turned off the radio so it didn't center up on its own. <laughs> oh. So now so she was she so the interstate was lit up as if it were a runway, basically is what it sounds like. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Now that goes back to knowing but that goes back to knowing your environment too. But were y'all on a sure. I think were y'all on a cross country or is that local or do you even remember? No, we were all on a cross country. I yeah. gotcha. So it might have been new to both of y'all. So now check and verify. And if something's not logical, there must be a reason why, right? Right. Gotcha. Right. That, that reminded me of, of another time when um, I was flying between some cloud layers and um, this was a, a VFR flight and we knew that um, and, and this was actually in Arizona, so we knew that, you know, as we went further on that, that uh, we were going to lose those clouds, um, at least so that we could land and so forth. But um, you do, you know, the clouds don't always um, level up with the horizon. So you can uh-huh. get some, some lean, leans, if you will, even if, as a VFR pilot, um, not even being in the clouds, just being between a couple of layers. And um, those darn clouds, just, they just want to make you level, level with their um, time and, and, uh, and, and angle. But now you have to you have to really trust those instruments. That attitude indicator is right, and you know certainly uh, um, you know your, your uh, turn coordinator. If you're not you're not turning, if that's not turning, it's not giving you any any rate of turn. And, and uh, Rod Machado used to you know talk about um, you know putting uh, a um, Pope soap on a rope, if you will, or you know putting some type uh, yeah, of plumb bob yeah. in, in the airplane. <laughs> yes. That way you can. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and uh, helicopter pilots have a little piece of uh, string that's in front yeah, of the string. And, yeah, yeah. And then I guess uh, glider pilots use the same kind of technology. So plumb. yeah, soap on yeah. a rope or something like that dangling from the. <laughs> uh, from I don't know where you'd put it on a, in a 172, but uh, I guess you can hook it from the, I don't know, if you have a some kind of visor. But that's a good point that you bring up, right. which is, hey, look at your instruments, trust your instruments, and the and the horizon it doesn't always equate to the horizon of, of the clouds. The clouds could, could start yes. at a higher altitude, look like a solid deck, but actually be coming down lower. Yes. I've actually, yes. I've seen that in the daytime quite a few times, actually. <laughs> yes. Yes. Again, you know, trying to equate what you've learned, you know, in the daytime and how that might look and feel and, and um, you know, understand it for, for night flying. We have um, a condition here where a lot of times the uh, air masses will move up from the um, east or the southeast and pick up some moisture off the Arkansas River. And then we'll get that upslope condition where we'll pack right up against the front range mountains. And, you know, to watch out for that, it's just like it says in, in the airplane flying handbook, you know, the lights start to get a little fuzzy, the lighting gets fuzzy, rather looks like um, and someone's, you know, starting to, to uh, spray paint moisture across your windshield. And you're like, oh, you know, we might be getting into to, uh, some areas of, of lower visibility. 
and uh, out here for us in the West, you know, if, if we don't have 50 to 100 miles visibility, we're just sure that it's IFR when it gets down to you know, 12 or 20. But, mm-hmm. You know, I understand from flying back um, east some myself that it you know, takes some getting used to to fly at, at by three miles visibility and five miles visibility. Right, right. That's a real yeah. good point. And actually thinking about precipitation at night. It might be a little bit harder to see that. I, can't, I guess that's where we're going with that. It might be harder yeah. to see the, the, you know, the start of something like that. And then that could be a real bad situation if it's uh, winter time or if the temperatures are low and you start to get some precipitation. And we're in a, you know, an, an aircraft that's not certified for a flight in the known icing conditions. Right. That could really be a gotcha. It gets downright dangerous right very quickly. Yes. Right. Well, well, um, let's think. We'll, we'll wrap it up pretty soon, Zoanne, because I know you have a very, very busy schedule. But think about um, uh, back to the first part of our conversation, where you're telling me a little bit about some of your favorite reasons to fly at night. Um, is there any favorite place that you've been to at night? Ah, uh, <laughs> I, mean, I just I just enjoy being out at night um, all the time. But um, and you know, my parents live across Kansas in Missouri, and so. Uh-huh. I have to say, you know, going into Kansas City is just a delightful time at night. Um, you know, you go across Kansas and, you know, there, there's you know, all the small airports and it's, it's fun to, you know, turn on the lights as I fly across at night. Turn on, you know, it helps know, you know, where I am as well to, to turn up the, the runway lights using uh, the common traffic advisory frequency. You know, and, but then all of a sudden you, you get across the river and there, uh, across the Missouri River and you're into to the Kansas City area and it's, it's like you... Um, came back to home. So I'd have to say Kansas City is, is one of the most delightful places to fly into at night, whether it's the international airport out, out north or the airport downtown right along the river and right next to, to town. Um, Las Vegas, we were, I was just there for NBAA. That's, of course, an, a magical place to, to land at night. It's, it's quite busy now, but uh, you see a lot of, of the casinos and, and all those bright lights. That's, that's a wonderful place to, to fly at night. Yeah, it is. I was just in Kansas City over the weekend for a little NASCAR race. And, um, oh, I, yes. Yeah, I know where the, um, where the big airport is. I did notice that there were quite a few airports in that area, but that kind of makes sense because we have a lot of aviation in Kansas, not just in, in, you know, basically right. in Kansas City, but uh, elsewhere. And, um, but that is interesting. So is Kansas pretty darn flat for most of the way? A little bit of rolling um, hills, well, maybe? It's pretty much straight downhill for us, you know, from, from 6,000 feet <laughs> right. to 1,000 to feet or whatever. Right. 800, and, you know, depends on which airport you land at, yes. So if, the, so if the conditions are right, you can probably see pretty darn far if you're in the uh, Kansas, in Missouri, Kansas area. Right. You can see the lights from Kansas City about, a, about an hour away. You can begin to wow. see the lights from Kansas City and know that you're, That's cool stuff. You know, you're headed to your destination. So it's cool stuff. I yeah. like it. Well, you have been so helpful to us, Oan. We really appreciate your time. Now, folks are listening to us on the podcast, and they want to get in touch with you. Say they live in your area. Um, would you mind telling folks how they could find you guys and, and maybe do a little flying with you? Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, too, David, for the opportunity to do, do the podcast. This has just been a real delight. But um, officially, we're called the Rocky Mountain Flight Training Center. RockyMountainFlight.com is, is our website. Um, we're here at the Peterson Air Force Base, so we're more informally known as the Peterson Aero Club. And our phone number here, um, if you want to you know, talk to our ops clerk, Megan, she's really the, the gateway. She's um, here Monday through Friday, except on Wednesdays from 8 until 3. She's really you know, the one to, to get you all set up to come in here. Um, it is, we are on an active military base, so you do have to have um, a way to get here, but we can usually arrange um, a one-time 
tour or you know, chance to fly with us uh, if you don't have access to the, the military base. And of course, then there's ways to, to, to join up and, and uh, meet with us. But it, we also have here at Colorado Springs, we're very fortunate. There's a number of other wonderful flight schools on the field and and even at a couple of the private airports and, and the non-towered airports around too, from uh, Peak Aviation and, and Springs Aviation out at the Meadow Lake Airport. So we've got quite an active um, flight training community out here and just great places to, to fly and to get some mountain checkouts. But uh, anyway, Megan's number uh, for us is uh, 719-556-4310. And if you can't get on base, Megan will help you with that or help you point you to one of the other schools in the area. Again, but that's uh, 719-556-4310. And that information is all on our website at RockyMountainFlight.com. RockyMountainFlight.com. And Zoanne Harkle Road, congratulations on your uh, award. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank you for giving us some night flying tips and for participating in Hangar Talk. We'll sign off, and thanks again. Okay. All right. You're welcome. All right, David, that's a great talk. She's uh, an awesome instructor, just a really dynamic personality. She was and great. Fun to listen to. Yeah, and I took I, I took some tips away from that. You know, learned a little bit more about how to identify cities at night when there's a low cloud cover. That can be tough. It was really neat. Yeah. And uh, out out her way, and a little bit out this way with some mountains nearby. If you're looking at those twinkly lights, like she said, and they go away, there's something in your way. <laughs> all right. On that note, I think that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening to Hangar Talk. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen, and I'm David Tulis. You can find us at aopa.org/hangartalk at the Sporties Takeoff app and on iTunes. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.